Let's uh, bow our hearts again as we come before God's word together this morning. Lord, your word says of itself that it is living and powerful. And Lord, we're told also that the things that were written aforetime are there for our learning, for our benefit. And so Lord, as we look at these things, these historical events that took place some two and a half thousand years ago, then Lord, just help us to see what these things mean to us today. Lord, help us to understand what it is that you have to say to us today. Because Lord, we know, and we've seen so many times in your word, that you desire a relationship with your people and to talk to your people. And that your people would hear your voice and obey. So Lord, that's what we ask for ourselves this morning, that we would hear your voice and then by your grace, that we would obey you. And so Lord, we just give you this time now. Take my words and Lord, the thoughts, Lord, the preparation aside and Lord, whatever you want to say now, Lord, we just pray you speak to us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're looking through the book of Second Kings. Historically, in the rest of the world, Rome was being founded around about the time that we're, we're studying these things. But of course, Greece was far from uh, becoming anything of note that hadn't yet risen as a world power. Uh, Rome certainly was uh, way off in terms of it becoming a powerful uh, empire. Um, so we're dealing, before the Babylonian kingdom came, we're looking at the time even before the Assyrian empire had really come to power. Uh, and Syria, um, north of Israel, are the power house at the moment in the, the world stage at this time. And we're going to see them flexing their muscles this morning. Of course, Israel had been very powerful under Solomon. So that takes you back to around about 900 to 1,000 years before Jesus. And that's when Israel had been at its height, both from a a wealth point of view and also from a a military power perspective. But of course, then we get to the dividing of the kingdom after Solomon with Rehoboam and Jeroboam. Um, Rehoboam being the son of Solomon. And of course, through his hard-heartedness, And uh, on account of not only his sin, but because of Solomon disobeying God, walking away from all that he knew at the end of his life, God then says that he's going to tear the kingdom away. And that's what we see. So we're looking now at these accounts of these subsequent kings that ruled in Israel. And we're looking, focusing particularly on the northern part of Israel, the northern kingdom, which is referred to as Israel. The southern part, in contrast, is referred to as Judah. Now, we're not seeing a lot of the things going on in Judah at the moment, um, because Chronicles will focus on Judah. And when we get there, Lord willing, we'll look at that side of the coin, as it were. But for now, in the book of Kings, primarily our focus is on what's going on up north. Now, We've seen various prophets come and go. Of course, the most notable one we've seen is Elijah. Uh, He's been on the scene. and Incredible life, incredible ministry, really bringing the hearts of the people back to God, that situation at Carmel uh, that we spoke about earlier this morning and studied some weeks ago. But actually, we find in Scripture that Elisha, who follows on after Elijah, is endued with his power and does twice as many miracles as Elijah does. So Elisha is really quite some character. Um, but the interesting thing is that the miracles of Elisha almost seem kind of random. Uh, and you kind of don't quite see why God would just use somebody to do the miracles that he does. And as we looked last week, there are a number of these things that can apply and speak directly to us. And particularly, we saw last week the character of God 
being borne out through the miracles that the Lord was working through Elisha. Now, bear in mind, this isn't just Elisha walking around with some superman power to do what he wants to do when he wants to do it. This is Elisha, a servant of God who had sought God all his life, who had followed Elijah and had been in this place that he wanted to have this power but for the glory of God. And so Elisha is led by God in doing what he does. And the miracles that he does are not just spur-of-the-moment things. They're situations that God engineers. Now, we noted last week that we've got five miracles, you can argue possibly six, uh, in that first uh, section that we looked at, um, all of them depicting God's grace. And just to remind you again, the first miracle is really speaking of God's provision. That God will provide all of your needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus, we're told. Also, that posterity, a kind of a family name, and that we've been given a family name. A name that's better than any other name. And we've been grafted in and allowed to be part of God's family. An incredible privilege. Then the next miracle was a miracle of healing, of life from the death, uh, from dead. Uh, you know, and we, we see, of course, with our own situation that we were dead in trespasses and sins. And by God's grace, we've been given this second chance. Then we see this miracle of peace with these food problems they're having and they're worried about the poison and you know, so on. But we see God, uh, through Elisha here, uh, doing these miracles and everyone's kind of put at peace. You know, whatever trial, whatever situation you go through, you know, however life-threatening you perceive it to be in its you know, initial form, we can have a peace with God that the Bible says passes understanding. And this is one of the, the great benefits we have as believers, as Christians. You know, it's not just that most of the time we have a better life in many respects, not financially or wealth, because we realize it's not about those things, but it's the fact that we have a peace that regardless of the external circumstances stops us losing the plot. You know, there's a lot of people in the world that, that just don't know where to turn or where to go. A lot of people end up going to psychiatrists or, you know, they're looking for all sorts of answers in various religions or they'll try, you know, various Eastern practices, try yoga or whatever to try and find some sort of sense out of life, try some sort of meaning. You know, people try to go to counsellors. Well, the Bible says we've got the greatest counsellor of all is the Holy Spirit. You know, and Jesus said that we have that peace. So, and that was that. And then the final miracle we see is this one of cleansing that which was uncleansable. And of course that speaks of all of us. Leprosy we saw anyway is a type of sin um, all through scripture. Um, but our sin has been cleansed. What a, an incredible miracle. And all of these, again, God's grace. You can't earn them. You can't do anything to kind of notch up a few points and once you get a few stickers in your book you can claim one. That's not the way these work. These are God's grace. And purely by submitting to him. We see God work these things in our lives. But now we're going to be given a very strange picture. And this one does need to be explored. Because we've already seen that there's a lot to kind of draw out for our own selves in these miracles so far. But the next one really is a bit of a strange one. And certainly, if you read the commentaries, you'll get lots of different ideas and, and suggestions. And some of them, to be honest, just skim over it completely. Don't even talk about it. So let's have a look at the text. So Second Kings, we're in chapter 6. And let's pick up from verse 1. So the sons... Of the prophets said unto Elisha, Behold, now the place where we dwell with these two straight for us. Let us go, we pray thee, unto Jordan, and take thence every man a beam, and let us make a place there where we may dwell. 
And he answered, Go ye. And one said, Be content, I pray thee, and go with thy servants. And he answered, I will go. Okay, so let's just kind of set the scene of what's going on here. The ministry in Israel with these prophets is expanding. And effectively, there's not enough room on campus for them. Just just think a moment of the situation we've got going on in the nation. The nation has, by and large, turned away from God. But you can't stop God's program, God's plan. You see, even in this time where so many people were rejecting God, the schools of the prophets were overflowing. There was more people than there was room. And they get to this stage now where they're saying, look, we've got to build somewhere bigger. You see, it doesn't matter how black or bleak the world gets, God's program is not going to be thrown off course. And even in today's world, when we look at you know, all the problems we find, you know, we need to be mindful, just as it was with Elijah. 7,000 that he didn't know about, but had never bowed the knee. God had reserved those. There's always some that God has set aside and God's plan carries on regardless. So even at this time, God was still working and doing something in the lives of people that were willing to submit to him. So it's suggested to build this new facility down somewhere near the Jordan. Now there are a number of these kind of Bible colleges, you could argue, uh, at that time. Um, these places for the prophets to learn and grow and study. Um, there was one at Bethel, there was another one down at Jericho. Um, and they, they're, arguing, they're saying they want to go down to the Jordan, probably because uh, trees there, fertile area, is a great place to get the trees, so rather than carrying the trees a long distance, good place to build it. Now, Elisha gives his approval and his blessing to the work. So they're, they're, they're keen, they're obviously going to go and do it, but then somebody says, oh, but Elisha, please come with us. Now, we're not told specifically why that request is made, probably to oversee the work, but also just to encourage these young prophets. You know, to have a, a prophet like Elisha there, who they'd already seen do these wonderful miracles, but it was just a great incentive for them, you know, to, to know that Elisha is there approving of what they're doing and, and so on. So that's kind of the scene that we have. And we talk verse 4. So he went with them, and when they came to Jordan, they cut down wood. Now, Jordan, interestingly, represents in Scripture a place of decision. You know, we often in our songs, Jordan seems to represent the um, the transition from this life to the next life, and people talk about that crossing over Jordan as if it's kind of like when we get to the end of our lives we die, and you know that's not really a scriptural concept uh, in that sense. But what we do find is that Jordan represents a place of decision. If you look at the times Jordan occurs, the River Jordan, you know, firstly, really we see with the children of Israel under Joshua. You know, when they're about to go into the land. It's really that moment of decision. Are we really going to step out in faith now in all that God has called us to and go into this land? And even the crossing of the Jordan was a step of faith. You know, it wasn't until the priests got their feet in the water that were told the water stopped flowing. And then they were all able to cross over on dry ground. You know, I often think that's an interesting picture, you know, as the priests are there carrying the ark, as they would have had the ark with the poles going through the ark, and they've been carrying the, the poles and the priests going in. You know, was it when the first priest put his foot in the water that the water stopped flowing, or was it when the last priest put his foot in the water? In which case, how deep was that first priest? But it was still faith, either, either way. They went into the water, and when they were in the water, the water stopped flowing, and then everybody makes that journey across knowing that this is going to represent change. It's not going to be the same from now on. And this is what kind of Jordan really kind of speaks to us in a number of times. Another occasion, 
we can silence scripturally, you know, these kind of ideas. You need to have kind of two scriptural references before you can start forming these type of ideas. But certainly, uh, you know, two witnesses that testify to Jordan being a place of change and decision and so on. Uh, a second one being with John the Baptist. That John was calling people out. They were coming to see him as he was baptizing in the Jordan. And for those individuals, every one of them that was coming out, what a moment of decision and change in their life. As they're coming to, to John and he's calling them to repent. And you've got people from all different walks of life. You know, class didn't matter, rank didn't matter, your career didn't matter. This was an issue between you and God. And people were coming out and they were repenting of their sin and they were being baptized. What a, a time for those individuals. So we see that this place has in its kind of whole idea and the, the, the times we see it in scripture that kind of concept of change and decision that's going to chart your future course. And I want you to just keep that in mind as we then look at the rest of the text that we're going to look at. So verse 5 we read, But as one was felling a beam, so he's there chopping down a tree and so on, uh, the axe head fell into the water. And he cried and said, Alas, master, for it was borrowed. So he's chopping away and as he goes to take a swipe, the axe head just flies off and goes and lands in the Jordan somewhere. Now, This individual had been entrusted with something of significant value. Iron was very scarce in Israel at that time. In fact, you know, we've already seen, mentioned already, that the other nations had iron tools and chariots and spears and so on, but there wasn't any in Israel. In fact, when we look back as far as Saul and Jonathan, they had spears of iron, but the rest of the army didn't. You know, so this is something that wasn't freely available at that particular time. So iron is something of great value. And this axe there would have been certainly prized. And it's been lent to this individual. So something that he'd been entrusted with. Something been given to him. Certainly of significant value. And then we see that it was a tool that was actually given to him to equip him to fulfill his ministry. At that particular time, the ministry he was called to was to chop down trees. That's what he was doing. He was getting involved in building this new building for the prophets. So it's something that had been given to him. It's to equip him to fulfill his ministry. However, as we see, he'd not given it the care that it required. Now, why do I say that? Well, he allowed the axe head to get loose because that's the only way it could have come off. You know, just give you some kind of idea of what we're looking at here. As I said, iron already was, was scarce. The axe head would have been tied on to the handle. And if the binding had worked his way loose, the head would come off, which seems to be what's happened here. Now, just to give you an idea, that's a type of axe head that would have been used at this time. Um, Typically, a piece of wood would have been split to some degree, and a piece of metal placed in between, obviously, the axe head, and then bound round to keep it nice and tight, keep the head on. So only by allowing the whole axe head to get loose, this gift that he'd been given, would it get to this state. So partly it was because he hadn't cared for it in the way that he should have done. And verse 6 we read, and the man of God, it's a reference of course to Elisha, said, where fell it? And he showed him the place. And cut down a stick and cast it in thither, and the iron did swim. Therefore said he, take it up to thee, and he put out his hand and took it. Now, that's the end of this particular section. And then we move on to a, a new subject, which we'll get to in a moment. But 
what is this? It just seems such a strange, random type of miracle. Is there anything there for us? Well, yes, I believe there is. Because as we've already seen God's grace in the previous miracles, I think we see the same thing amplified for us here in this miracle. You see, there's two remes here. For the Hebrews, for the Jews, uh, for the rabbis, they speak of a remes, which is something that they perceive to be deeper. A hint of something that maybe you don't see on the surface. I want you to draw your attention to two things that we see. Firstly, the question, why did Elisha say, where did it fall? Why did that really matter? I mean, if Elisha has the power to make this thing swim, did it really matter? Did he have to actually physically point to it? Or So that's just a curious, why did he ask the question? And then secondly, why go to the trouble of cutting down another stick? Why not just use a handle for the axe? Because you notice he says, uh, and he cut down a stick. This is Elisha. Cuts down a stick. And then casts it in. It's the third time actually we've seen that phrase, and he cast it in. Elisha, three times as we've seen that already. And we could probably make more of that. But just to move on. See, Elisha takes his man back, first of all, to the place where he lost his cutting edge. If I may put it that way. The first thing Elisha says to him is, where did you lose it? You know, kind of reminiscent to the situation with Elijah, we'll comment on that a moment ago, when God had taken him down to Mount Sinai. You know, so we see that on the surface anyway, this is a lesson on getting something back. So the first step in getting your cutting edge back is to return to the place that you lost it. Now, as I mentioned, we saw God do this with Elijah. If you remember, God gets Elijah all, Elijah all the way down to Sinai, to Mount Horeb, the mountain of God, where the Lord had been given. And twice God asks him the question. He says, what are you doing here, Elijah? That's the first time. And then we have the earthquake, the wind, the fire, and then finally a still small voice. And God again says, Elijah, what are you doing here? And as you said, when God asks you a question, it's not because he needs information. It's not because he needs your help with the answer. When God asks a question, it's because he wants you to think. And he was saying to Elijah, what is it that has led you to this place? Why are you here? And Elijah had to think, well, I'm here because I'm being chased because Queen Jezebel wants to kill me. Okay, why does Queen Jezebel want to kill you? Well, she wants to kill me because I was put to death the prophets of Baal and I spoke against her prophets and... Why? Well, because the nation had been given over to idolatry. And suddenly Elisha, as he tracks back to where he'd lost his cutting edge, realizes that actually he'd been zealous for the Lord God of Israel. He'd been really offended that the nation had gone after these false gods. And he'd set his heart to pray. And then because of God's word, as we saw when we were studying back, in uh, first, King, uh, first Kings chapter 17, 18, 19, that whole area. Elijah has seen in God's word that actually if the nation were to reject God, God would stop the rain. And so that's when he goes in marching into Ahab and tells them it's not going to rain for three and a half years. So God does with Elijah what I think we're seeing a little bit of here. Go back to where you lost your edge. Go back to where... It kind of went wrong. And think about what has led you to this place now. Now Already, maybe there's things that you can identify in your own life, even at this point. But let's carry on. Paul said to the Galatian believers, who hindered you? You know, really the same same kind of question to them. You know, 
you've gone astray. You've lost your cutting edge. You've lost something. Why? What happened? Go back to where it went wrong. We read of the church at Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2. Great church, doctrinally very sound, but we're told that they lost their first love. And Jesus reminds them, you've lost something. You need to go back to, to that place. Don't let it go. You've got to go and find that thing that you lost. It's so important. And once again, just as this act said, it was something that had been given. It was a gift that they'd received. You see, in both of those cases with the Galatian believers and the church at Ephesus, they'd lost something that had made them effective in ministry. You know, and you can't carry on in ministry if you've lost your cutting edge. You can't fake it. You know, you might be able to go for a very short period of time before somebody realizes that something's not right. You know, think back to our man here who's lost his axe head. You know, he could have carried on trying to chop away, but it wouldn't have been very long before everybody realized he wasn't bearing any fruit. He wasn't actually doing anything of any value. You know, there's a lot of people in churches today that are swinging axes without the head on there. They've lost their cutting edge and they're just swinging away. They're doing something. They might be making some noise, but they're not actually effective in their ministry because they've lost something, something vital, something that's been given to them as a gift. Now, what's the, the personal application? Well, there's a number of ways we can apply this, but you know, for you personally this morning, have you lost something given to you for the work of ministry? You know, the Bible makes it very clear that everyone who is a believer has been given a gift, or gifts, plural, of the Holy Spirit. And each one of us should be using those gifts for the edification of the body. You know, how are you using the gifts that God has given you? Or have you even lost them? Have you kind of laid it aside somewhere and you, you've lost your cutting edge? You know, what about in your own personal life with God? Is there a time that you can think back where you prayed more than you are now? What about reading God's word? Was there a time that you can think back where you used to read the Bible more than you do now? Or maybe study more than you do now? Was there a time when it was all a bit more exciting than it is now? You know, is there a time that you used to really prize the things of God? Is there a time you used to really love fellowship with other believers? And now maybe it seems hard, it seems like a chore. You just feel like you've lost something. Well, I think this is what this miracle really is trying to get our attention. Again, something given by grace that maybe has been lost. We've got to go back first of all and kind of track that path back. Where did we lose it? Why did we lose it? What happened? Did we allow our walk with God to get a little bit loose and the axe head's flown off? Have we allowed something else to affect, to come in to take our affections and attentions? But the second part of this is that Elisha cuts down a stick. Now this is quite interesting, and this isn't something maybe you'd see on the surface and bear in mind that we use translations of the Bible but this is quite interesting because the Hebrew word that's used here is a very short little word is eats is the word it's first used in Genesis chapter 1 verse 11 of a fruit tree 
a tree that bears fruit. We find it's also used in Genesis 6.14, the same word of the wood that was used for Noah's ark. So you see that although it's translated as a stick, the implication is possibly far more than just that. It's also used in Genesis 22, verse 6, of the wood upon which Isaac was laid. You start to see kind of a picture as you look at the usage of this word. It's used in Genesis 40, verse 19, of the tree that the baker was hung on. And of course we see that as a type of the cross. Because the baker, the bread, put on a tree. Jesus' body broken for us. Used in Exodus 15.25. It's interesting, we read there that he, this is Moses, cried unto the Lord and the Lord showed him a tree. That's the same word. Uh, eats there. Showed him a tree, which when he had cast into the waters, the waters were made sweet. So they had a problem, the waters were bitter, they couldn't drink the water, everybody was complaining. And notice that the Lord shows him a tree. The tree had been there all along. Always been there. Moses hadn't noticed it. The actual Hebrew, the implication here, looking at the commentaries of what they tell us, is that God literally kind of pointed his finger at the tree for Moses. Look, look at this. You know what it's like with a, with a, a child sometimes? You're trying to get to see something. Like, come over here, look, see? That's the kind of idea that God was showing Moses. But it's the same word that's used here. It's the same tree that's spoken of in Deuteronomy, chapter 21 and 20, verse 23. And Paul quotes this verse in the New Testament. That Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree. Now that's the Greek, of course, New Testament. But the verse that's quoted is from Deuteronomy. And in Deuteronomy, it's the same word again. Speaking of the tree upon which Christ was crucified. So this, in a sense, is the tree that's cast in. It's the only one that can bring life from the dead. It's the only one that can bring restoration. So I think we've got another miracle, if we're keeping count, sixth, really, miracle of grace that we're seeing here. You know, if we've allowed something valuable in our lives, something that God has given us to get loose, if we find that we've lost our cutting edge in ministry, firstly, cry out to your master. That's the first step. Because that's what this young man does. He cries out to Elisha. Well, that's a good step to, to start with, isn't it? And that's what you must do. If you've lost something, cry out to Jesus. Go to him first. You see also, just as this man, it's suddenly the realisation dawns that I, I borrowed that, it wasn't mine. You know, we're reminded that that which God has given us, the gifts, the talents, that he's entrusted to our care, was paid for by someone else. It wasn't earned. You know, we could go off and look at the parable that Jesus tells about the talents. You know, what are you doing with the talents that God has given you? You know, I hope you're not just buried in the ground and hoping that it'll all get forgotten. You know, the wise individuals in that parable were the ones who had invested it. And they don't double what they'd been given. 
What about you? What has God given you? And what are you doing with it? Remember, these things that were given, they're gifts of God's grace. So again, firstly, we cry to our master, but then secondly, we've got to go back to the tree. This is what Elisha does. Elisha now goes to this tree. That's where we've got to go. Go back to the tree. Ultimately, back to the cross. For that alone can bring back that which was buried. That's the the real message, I think, for us here. The only way of restoration. You know, throwing in the the handle for the axe wouldn't have done any good. That's just RFR work in a sense. We've got to go back to the cross. We've got to go back to Jesus. We've got to come humbly before him. Because that will bring restoration. Just an interesting thought. Imagine what it was like for this individual after he's waded in and he's pulled this axe head out. Just just floats to the surface. And he goes and brings it out and no doubt ties it back onto the handle and straps it on really well this time. I wonder what it was like when he was using it next time and the time after that. If every time he went to pick up that axe, how special would it have been? Knowing not just that it was a, a gift from somebody else, but having gone through this process, having, in a sense, been given a second chance with it. But what about you with the, the talents, the, the gifts, the ministries that God is calling you to? Yeah, when you realize that God has given you a second chance, shouldn't it make it exciting and fun? You know, that God wants you to be involved in his program? What an honor, what a privilege. You know, God doesn't say, that's it, you've blown it, clear off, I don't want you anymore. Thankfully. God says, no, I want to use you, I want to work with you. You know, it's like, we've used these kind of examples before, but the times when I've mowed the grass and Marla's helped me. You know, I use the word help in inverted commas. It's not really a lot of help. I could get the job done in a fraction of the time if I was doing it on my own. That's not the point. The fact is it's something so special to work with my child, to do something together. That's what God wants to do with you. God doesn't need you to do things. God could get it done probably a lot quicker and more effectively without you. That's not the point. You're his child. He loves you. God wants to work with you. That's why he's given you gifts and talents and abilities. You may be sitting there this morning thinking, but I don't know what my, my talents are. Well, then go back to the cross. Go back to Jesus. Ask him to show you. You know, at the end of the day, just take one step at a time. And you'll probably find that before long, if you're walking with God, somebody will come up to you. If you haven't already identified it yourself, somebody else will come up to you and identify it. That you have a particular gift or ministry. But you see, as a body of believers, we should be working together. Every part doing its share. And again, know that that thing that God has given you is for you. Because he loves you and wants to work with you as his child. Let's just look at the next section. 
Then the king of Syria warred against Israel. That's a sad statement in itself. You see, this enemy could have been completely destroyed by Ahab. He'd been given that opportunity. And reason there's another part to this lesson this morning, and that is that if you allow the things of the world to survive in your life, when God has said you should cut them off, they will become problems for you. We've got to be aware of making alliances with the world because the world will never give us anything. It will just look to take and destroy. See, God had appointed the Syrian army for destruction and Ahab had that opportunity. But instead, because he thought it may grant him some recognition and position, he kind of allies himself with the person that up until a few hours before was intent on his destruction. You know, just like the things of the world in our lives, they're looking to destroy us. Satan is looking to destroy our lives through the temptations and the trappings and the things of the world. You know, if we allow those things to live, they're going to be a snare to us. You know, we want to be fruitful for God. You know, it may be that that miracle of God's grace we've looked at this morning, where God is giving you a chance of restoration, of sending you out again in work and ministry for him. Maybe that stirred your heart. But you know, if you are struggling with things of the world, well, it's just like the writer to the Hebrews speaks of the sin which so easily ensnares us. You know, try running a race if you've got a snare around your ankle. You can't do it. But we read, Then the king of Syria warred against Israel and took counsel with his servants, saying, In such and such a place shall be my camp. And the man of God sent unto the king of Israel... Now, just a note here, that's the man of God, that is, of course, Elisha, again, saying, Beware that thou pass not such a place, for thither the Syrians have come down. So God warns Israel's king that the Syrians were coming a particular way. They were sending these bands into Israel to plunder and everything else. And the king of Israel uh, sent to the place which the man of God had told him, and warned him of and saved himself there, not once or twice. This has happened on a number of occasions. Now, just again, just to give us an idea, this is the king that we're talking about, Jehoram. This is the, the, the reign of the second son of Ahab that's come to the throne. So it's during this 12-year period that these things are happening. So just so we've got a, an idea of the timeline, if that helps for you. Therefore the heart of the king of Syria was so troubled for this thing, and he called his servants and said unto them, Will you not show me which one of us for the king of Israel? He thinks he's got a spy in the camp. And one of his servants said, None, my lord, O king, but Elisha, the prophet that is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that thou speak in thy bedchamber. Now this is kind of phone tapping in the extreme, isn't it? This is why... (laughs) I wonder if that servant was Naaman, by the way. Because we know that he was a servant of the king. And of course he knew a bit about what was going on down in Israel, and the prophets in Israel. Maybe. But whoever it was, one of these servants goes and tells the king, you know, well, look, it's not one of us that's that's telling the king of Israel. It's Elisha because of his God. (laughs) And God, again, just note there, here's the things that are said even when you're on your own. And he said, go and spy where he is, that I may send and fetch him. And it was told him, saying, behold, he is in Dothan. Therefore, send he thither horses and chariots and a great host. And they came by night and compassed the city about. 
And when the servant of the man of God was risen early and gone forth, behold, a host compassed the city both with horses and chariots. And the servant said unto him, Alas, my master, how shall we do? So this great army now is surrounding them with horses and chariots surrounding the city. And so Elisha's servant is looking out and thinking, uh-oh, <laughs> this isn't good. And he answered, this is Elisha answering, and says, fear not. Wow, just think about that for a moment. Surrounded by an army intent on capturing you. And a human being could have the composure to say, it's okay, don't worry. That's not natural. This is that peace of God that passes understanding. And Elisha says, for they that be with us are more than they that be with them. And Elisha's servant's looking there and he's going, uh, one, two. Because of course he's looking with natural eyes. He's looking at things the way he can see them. Of course, in the natural, he's absolutely right. There's a multitude gathered against him with their horses and chariots. And there's just Elisha and his servant. And then we're told, and Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray thee, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire round about Elisha. Wow. Just in a split second for this servant of Elisha, everything changed. As suddenly he sees what Elisha knew already. You know, the question for us question for you this morning how will you feel when the curtains are pulled back you know when we finally get to that place when jesus has returned has set up his kingdom and you see all of these things when you get to see an angel when you get to see the the cherubim the seraphim that are around god's throne how's it going to make you feel How's it going to make you feel about that which you currently deem important in the natural? How will it change your views and opinions when suddenly all of this is real? And I know for many of us in our hearts, we know it's real, we believe it, but do we really live it? Is it part of our lives? Have we got to that place where the spiritual is so real to us that we know that God is working in these situations? What an incredible situation. And we read, um, when they came down to him, Elisha prayed unto the Lord and said, Smite this people, I pray thee, with blindness. And he smote them with blindness, according to the word of Elisha. And Elisha said unto them, This is not the way, neither is this the city. Follow me, I'll bring you to the man whom you seek. But he led them to Samaria. So he now leads them to the capital of Israel. This multitude, the horses, their chariots, they're all blind. So they're probably all kind of following on in a line, following each other. No doubt tripping over things as they go. And it came to pass that when they were coming to Samaria, that Elisha said, Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see. And the Lord opened their eyes, and they saw, and behold, they were in the midst of Samaria. I wonder how they felt all of a sudden. And the king of Israel said unto Elisha, when he saw them, My father, shall I smite them? Shall I smite them? It's kind of double emphasis there. You know, he's like, can I please now? Wow. Well, 
He answered and said, Thou shalt not smite them. Would thou smite those whom thou hast taken captive with the sword and with the bow? Set bread and water before them, that they may eat and drink and go to their master. And he prepared great provision for them. And when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away. And they went to their master, so the bands of Syria came no more into the land of Israel. I'm sure they didn't. I'm sure that experience, to use today's vernacular, would have freaked them out. It must have been an just incredible situation. But a third lesson for us there this morning. We've got to look with spiritual eyes. You know, it's not going to be long before Jesus comes back. Yeah, we just got to look at what the Bible says. The Bible has never been wrong on prophecy. And the Bible speaks about the days in which we are living with incredible clarity and accuracy. And we see these things going on before us right now. Moving at such an incredible pace. You know, I remember some of you may have heard of the New Zealand evangelist Barry Smith. Uh, I had the pleasure to, to meet him. He stayed with us back in deal on a number of occasions when he came over. And uh, just incredible ministry, just kind of going and kind of stirring up people, talking about what was going to happen, the end times and everything else. And he used to speak about cash cancelling, getting to a time where we do away with cash. And, you know, at that time you could see that, yeah, well, I can understand that people will start to use credit cards more and more, but... For many people, that whole concept seems strange. Well, as we heard, was it last week or the week before? A couple of countries in Scandinavia, by the end of this year, are doing away with cash. We're there. Why is that significant? Because the Bible says that there's going to come a time when everybody, if they want to buy or sell, will have to have a mark on their right hand or their forehead. And the Bible refers to that as the mark of the beast. We're so close. You know, the reality is, the Antichrist is probably alive on the earth right now, somewhere. Going about his daily life. You know, Satan has got his agenda, his plan. And we see all these things starting to unfold. We need to start looking with spiritual eyes and realize that the days are few. Paul says that we should redeem the time because the days are evil. That was... Some 2,000 years ago. But now, what a time we live in. So, to conclude for this morning, three lessons. Firstly, we need to have eyes that are open spiritually. We need to look at this world not as the natural mind would see it. But ask God to open our eyes and see what's really going on. Secondly, we mustn't allow the things of the flesh to prosper in our life. If God has designated them for destruction, we've got to get rid of them. That's not a chore, it's not a burden. Getting rid of something that doesn't benefit you is never a great problem indeed. You know, to follow God, to embrace God, the Bible tells us God wants us, Jesus wants us to have an abundant life. So don't be like Ahab and try and make alliances with the things of the world because you think it might put you in better standing with your friends or your colleagues. Or... And then finally, if you have lost your cutting edge, get back to the cross. Remember where you lost it, but go to the cross. Go to Jesus who wants to give you that opportunity to serve him again. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we thank you. 
for your word. And Father, that even in this portion of uh, scripture, Lord, this historical narrative that we read from two and a half thousand plus years ago, Lord, you can speak to us this morning. And Father, we want to serve you. We want to be obedient to the call upon our lives. And Lord, there are so often times that maybe we do feel we've lost our cutting edge. And Lord, if there is anyone here this morning, Lord, stir their hearts. And Lord, for all of us, let us come back to the cross. Come back to where it all began. That which excited us when we first knew that you were the great God and Savior of mankind. Lord, restore to us the joy of our salvation, we pray. Lord, help us to pray like we've never prayed before, to read your word more than we've ever done, to desire fellowship more than we've done, because, Lord, we see the day approaching. Lord, work these things in our lives, we pray, by your grace. We ask it all in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.